What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When Ezekiel was born, I said to him, I have waited my whole life for you. What was my line? Do I say this is okay, podcast? Okay. Try this again. Hi, I'm Sheetal. And I'm Farheen. Every other week, we host a smileys with unique stories to tell. Welcome to Podvocative. Hello, welcome to episode two of season two. We're so excited to be starting a new series. So we got the chance to speak to amazing, incredible women who have non-traditional paths to motherhood and will have incredible, unique perspectives to share over the next two months. So in, in today's episode, we speak with Aaliyah, who is a wonderful, resilient woman who is a single mom. So she went through a divorce after getting married pretty young and after after doing research, she decided that she still wanted to be a mother and she wanted to go on that journey. So she had her son Ezekiel and she talks through what that was like for her and you know what it was like for him growing up. He had some significant trials and health issues that she will detail in today's episode. So she is such an embodiment of resilience and we admire her so much and she was an inspiration to both of us. So Aaliyah, we thank you so much for being here and we hope you all love listening to her story as much as we did. Thank you so much for being here. So just to get started, do you want to tell everyone who you are, what you do, where you're from, and then a terrible movie that is your guilty pleasure or you love to watch? My name is Aliyah. So I am from Dallas, Texas, originally. I am a psychologist by profession. And I like to say I'm also you know, a mom, a friend, a sister, a daughter, <laughs> all of those things too. I lately have been into watching Indian movies every Saturday night. Like the really silly boy meets girl falls in love in the worst possible way. <laughs> like makes no sense in the world. <laughs> and yet I'm addicted to the very bitter end. I totally get that. That's me with The Bachelorette. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny when they like meet in like public transport like in a bus or like a train I'm like that never I never want to talk to strangers in public transport what? and I fall in love by seeing you the first time you haven't even spoken <laughs> to me how do I know yeah. you're smart <laughs> <laughs> cool well of course thank you again for being here you are here today to talk through uh, a little bit of a personal a little bit of a difficult story so just to dive in, can you walk us through, um, you know, why you're here today? Tell us a little bit about the relationship that you were in um, and sort of starting out from a few years ago. So I am originally from Dallas and raised here in a community that I feel connected to and yet a little distant from as well. 
which I think helped me to kind of go on my own search and my journey. And, and part of my leaving and connection is also the fact that my family's been here. They're really involved in community. And then when I was young, my brother passed away here in Dallas. So I think there's ways that I always feel a sense of roots here, but also needed to explore. So I moved away to California. Um, I got married while I was there. I got my doctoral degree while I was there as well. So kind of some good times. And then I also got divorced while I was there. It was a hard time, but it was also a really cool time for me as well, just because I got to live on my own and actually have a paycheck where I could afford living on my own. And that was really cool for me. I just, one of the best years of my entire life was living out there on my own, doing me with people that I genuinely care about and that cared about me too. Along the path of getting a divorce led me to realize that I even before getting divorced, I always knew I wanted a child. And that was just at the core of my existence. And so stayed out there for a little bit, just didn't want to come home right after I separated. And um, after I come home, you know, started talking to my parents about this idea had already simmered on, then decided to have a baby on my own. After my divorce was finalized, actually, because I don't know if anyone tells you this, but if you have a baby while you're married, then they like assume the dad is the person you're married to. <laughs> so I made sure to finalize my divorce and then have a baby. Then came Ezekiel and he has been, <laughs> I don't want to say heartache, but he has been my biggest fears and joys and indescribable moments. So just going back a little bit to when you said you had finalized the divorce, just trying to understand how you knew the situation was no longer right for you. And did it come as a shock to him? You know, I'm going to say this up front. I have nothing bad to say about my ex-husband. I still care about him a lot. And I think he's a fabulous person. I don't think we were meant to be together. And I think that, you know, I was 18 when we got together. And my brother had died six months before I met him. He is the best friend of one of my cousins. You know, growing up in Dallas, I guess there was this idea that you get married early and I, I was kind of late, so to speak, to the game. Um, I got married when I was 23 and that's super young and I wish I would have taken the time to evaluate that relationship and recognize that though this person can be amazing, we were not right for each other. We had just really different values and ideas on how to live life. I knew I wanted to get a divorce. <sighs> Gosh, I, there were lots of moments. I just, my needs weren't being met in terms of a relationship. And I would sit in my closet and cry a lot. And then I think when it really hit home for me was my mom and dad came to visit and I dropped my parents to the airport. And I won't forget the look in my dad's eyes, just like tears in his eyes. And he says to me, you know, you can always come home. And it was in that moment that I knew that my parents saw my pain and that I wasn't holding on to a relationship out of fear of hurting my family and what would that mean? And, you know, getting divorced is just a lot. And, and again, it was, you know, my dad had lost a son and this felt like this was his son. And my, my husband at the time, my now ex-husband, had lost his father and it felt like they were this really great relationship and I was going to tear apart their relationship. And that was really hard for me to know that I was not just doing this to myself, but I was doing it to someone else. It was definitely not a shock to him, but I know that he would have never made the decision. I know that I had to be the one to make that decision. You guys got married young and you realized that the situation was no longer serving you. 
What was sort of the healing process going through the divorce and coming out of it? How were you coping with it? Because you were also involved in Jamatkana at the time. So what was all of that like for you? And, and was that hard to navigate on your own? I was on bot, so I was Kamranima at the time. I didn't tell anyone in Kani that I was separated. Um, a few of my closest friends knew. And so they were my support system. I had a little bit of family that lived in the Bay Area. They knew but really, I kept it a secret from them. My coping style, coping skills were kind of all over the place. But Kanye was definitely one of them because, you know, my Mukisai is an amazing, amazing person. And we get really close. It's for us, it was just a Mukisai and a Kamranima. And so you spend every single day with this person, literally every single day, just, and sometimes it was not a lot. We didn't have a big jamaat on like weekdays. And sometimes it was just the two of us. And so we could spend time talking. And some days Kanye was the only reason that I got out of bed, to be honest. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what was in my fridge, maybe some rice and yogurt, like the Indian version of ramen. <laughs> and my friends would come over and be like, okay, come on, put on clothes, like, let's get out, you know, and so my friends were my support system. I worked out, you know, I lived in a great area where I could go for a run, so I would go for a run, and I started picking up, like, running, and then, you know, just calling people, talking to people at one point um, to kind of help myself. I, I think I still do this. I had sticky notes, and I put things on my wall of things I should do to help myself feel better. So read a book, take a bath, like just go for a run. If I just was stuck in my bed and I felt like I couldn't move, I would look at the wall and be like, okay, pick something on the list. You've got to get out of bed. But it took a while for me to get there. So were there any particular reactions that stuck with you, either positive or negative, as you were going through this and when you were sharing it with your community? You know, honestly, most people, when they saw me, for the first time after I told him that we were separating, we were going through the divorce, they looked at me and they're like, you look at your best. You look like you're free. You look like you're yourself. And that helped me a lot to know that I was making the right decision. Like I was able to be me again. I was able to be the person that I felt like I could be in order to thrive in life. And so most people, generally speaking, were pretty great um, and were fine or didn't have much of a response. There were some people, you know, who like mostly older individuals who like give me the eye or the sad face like oh no I knew that the people who gave me the sad face just really were considering my future and what that meant like I didn't really take it in a bad way what would you say to people in similar situations who either feel the pressure to be married by a certain age or who are feeling the pressure to kind of operate on a certain timeline, both with regards to marriage and their career and having kids. Obviously, um, your life began to follow that timeline and then didn't. So what would you say to people who are kind of feeling that as well? Like everyone's path is different, right? So I'm not, I don't want to ever say that if that's the path you choose and it feels right for you, then great. But I think you need to make sure it feels right for you. That is my biggest thing for any person, especially a woman. Like if your path is, I want to be in a loving relationship and that's what you have and you want to have the baby and then you want to go to school, more power to you. Do you like be happy, but that's it. Be happy. Do what makes, do what feels right for you so that you can live your life in a way that makes sense for you. And for some people, it's going to be a traditional route and they feel wonderful in that. And that's great. And for other people that feel like that doesn't fit for them, then find what fits for you. Because 
like life expectancy is pretty long and I don't want to be miserable for 50 years of my life. That's just a really long time to be miserable. So yeah, explore, go places, do things, meet people outside who think differently and can provoke you and challenge you. And hopefully in that, you figure out what works for you. And I think people just need to do what works for them and find their voice and their comfort and their like track and route in life. I love that message so, so, so much. I think that's so important. I just want to follow up on that. I feel like, like, I, I want to say that's like an easier thing that's said than done. So one, what if you're confused and you don't know what's right for you, then I think in that situation, you'd kind of say like, maybe wait and try and explore some things. But then what if you know what's right for you, but you're fighting against this like pressure, or maybe you're fi- like, your parents have certain expectations, what would you say to people or at least young people in that situation who, you know, kind of feel this like conflict or pull? I get the pull. I am almost 40. And I still feel the pull. I want to do what my parents want. I want to meet their expectations. I will always want that because I love them and I know they love me. And so I think that it's about figuring out a world in which if it's possible to do both, then great. Like how can you respect your parents, love your parents and still meet their and still meet your own needs, right? So maybe it's small steps and versions of it. Sometimes we don't have to take a big jump and a big leap. That's not always the answer. And I get that, right? So if for some person they're like, well, I want to explore by going to school and it only make, and I can only go to the school that's like five hours away, then go five hours, right? Like it doesn't mean you have to move across the country for some people that works. But if you're thing is I can explore within this box but not the other box then take the baby steps start there and then you'll know if the next step is right you'll know if you want to maybe transfer out or you'll try something new at your university or you'll decide that you want to be a baker and you'll take a cooking class like try something and then you can make the next decision but just take a baby step and then you could take the next step. You know, looking back at your story and going through a divorce while you were on Ba and kind of navigating what that was like for you, what could the community have done better to support you during this time? And, you know, if there was anything that you felt that they did well, what was that? And if there are things that you would like to see the community start to pursue, what would that be? You know, well, one of the things I think about, and it was more after I got a thought that this started and I and I hope it continues, but I was part of Social Welfare Board for a long time. I know they had a lot of like women supporting women type of groups to try to create a sense of like, let's be together in this instead of sometimes like an us versus them, or if you're this, then you fit in. And if you're that, then you don't. And so like, how can we make it so that it doesn't matter what path you're on, but we're all women and we should all like jump in and support each other and empower each other at the time I was going across the country and doing some presentations on healthy relationships what does that look like right do we even learn things like that within our community do we have examples of what a healthy relationship is 
how do you know when it's unhealthy? What do you do when it's unhealthy? How can we as community members support those who are in an unhealthy relationship without the ideas of our expectations, right? So if I think you should do this, that doesn't mean that I should say that's the path you follow. It's more like, okay, where are you on your path? And what can I do to support it? Even if I think that's not the way it should be, right? Like hold your own stuff to the side so that another person can figure out their situation and their path even if it is not in the healthiest environment, because a woman in isolation is the worst place to be. And so like, how can we come together? Maybe I would say from the community, like let's find ways to not isolate someone in their darkest times. And I think we do a great job of that in a lot of areas, but then maybe not so great in other areas. And I think how can we do it in a way that makes sense for the other person, not like our ideologies as a community type of thing. So then moving forward, um, after you got the divorce, how did you decide that you wanted to pursue the motherhood path? This is one of those things that I caveat from the beginning as well, because I know not everybody feels the way I feel. And I think that there are so many women who have a range of emotions in terms of motherhood, even after they become a mother. And that's really important for me to recognize that people can have a range of emotions in motherhood. For me personally, I've always wanted to be a mom. It's so funny. My mom used to tell me when she, we were a little girl, like, my identity is motherhood. And I would look at her and be like, gosh, be something else than just a mother. And now being a mother is everything I have ever wanted and ever desired. And I am so incredibly grateful. Like, this is everything. When Ezekiel was born, I said to him, I have waited my whole life for you. He is everything I have ever wanted. Other girls dreamt about weddings and what their weddings would look like and, you know, who would be there and this big shenanigan and the White House or the picket fence and the, you know, white picket fence thing. And I was like, no, just give me the baby. <laughs> so for me personally, I knew that I wanted to be a mom. I had witnessed other individuals become mothers through non-traditional means. So one was like a single mom by choice. Another one, one of my friends, um, a lesbian couple that also needed to figure out how to like go through fertility and have a baby as well. And so I'd seen some examples of people near me go through the process. And so I, you know, went into support groups. I learned what it was going to be like. I tried to figure it out. I researched, I asked questions and then eventually decided that I was going to do it on my own. As you were going through this and pursuing motherhood by yourself, were there any hesitations on your end? Obviously, you always wanted to be a mother, but were there any hesitations surrounding being a single mother? And was that ever something that kind of deterred you? No, you know, ironically, I would tell people that I was super excited about the idea of it, even like years before I became or decided to officially pursue that and people would be like a child needs their dad and give me all this stuff about two parent households and I was just like no I'm a good mom I can be a mom I don't need your approval I don't want to hear your negativity I just didn't people had more to say about me being a single mom than they did about me being divorced getting divorced and it was like I was blowing what's so special about hero bread soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. 
Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. Their minds that I wanted to do this and how wrong it was. And with every time that someone told me that, I was like, no, I'm good. I know I can be enough for my child. And what about moms who get are widowed? Or what about mothers who get divorced and for whatever reason, the father's not involved? Like, that just didn't fly with me. I don't know. I think I just always felt sure in that that was my decision that I was going to be okay in being a mom on my own. What were some of the toughest parts about the process and the most rewarding parts of the process? And were they what you had expected initially? Luckily for me, the process to get pregnant was really easy, easier than I um anticipated or knew it was going to be. And so I was feel really blessed and grateful for that. The hardest part was actually post-delivery. The first few months were like so hard. Those were the couple of times where I was like, oh crap, you need a partner. Like you really need a partner. And, I, and that's also the moments I was really grateful for my mom and my dad. There's some things like not to get too graphic, but you just need help with some basic and especially just depending on your delivery and what happens for each person. But I just needed help sometimes, like physical help. And so that's where I was like, so grateful that my mom was around. And, you know, everyone thinks about the baby. And my mom thought about me. She took care of me. She was the one who made sure I was okay and made sure I had food and like just took care of me. And then after that, it got much easier. (laughs) When you get some sleep, you're like, okay, okay, I'm a functioning human being. I can do this. I can do this. And Ezekiel was born early. So I think that was the other part that was really hard was leaving him in the hospital and the NICU. Like you have to leave your baby there. And so as I was walking out the door, I was like, like, I'm not sure this is what I want to do. Can I just like sleep in the, and you know, and there's no place for you to sleep in the NICU. And then when they told me I could bring him home, I was like, are you sure? I don't think I'm ready to bring him home. I think I need all of you with me. Can you all come with me? And I will say, as he's gotten older, and he's had a pretty rough history, but um, as he's gotten older, it's just, it's really amazing. Yeah, yeah, completely. And you mentioned how your mom and your parents were there for you and your sister was there for you. How was there, what, what did their support look like when you first told them that you wanted to go ahead with having a child on your own? How did they react? I've been talking to my parents and my family about it for about a year and a half before I actually got pregnant. So I told my parent, I called my sister first and I was like, so <laughs> looks like it worked out. And then I had her come over and help me officially like tell my parents that I was pregnant. So I bought books for my parents and I had them up I slapped them down and I was like here open your presents and my dad was so happy like jumping for joy I'm gonna have a grandkid like the happiest 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 and my mom was like oh man you really did this <laughs> like the look on her face was like are you serious <laughs> and you know what 20 she came around within like 24 hours she came up to my room literally the next morning and was like her perspective was the world is a really hard place and I'm just really scared for you and I wanted you to be married and have a kid so that you could have what the community would think is okay and you've made this decision and of course I'm happy and I, I'm so excited about this grandkid but I'm I'm worried about you and I'm worried about your life and how hard this is going to be and I just wanted you to have a husband and a family because it's going to be hard by yourself and so she was just coming from a place of like concern for me yeah for sure she's always 
looking out for you. And I mean, just whenever you talk about your mom, I've always said moms are like these super species and like so selfless. And it's just so sweet to hear. So now what has life looked like since having Ezekiel? I know you said it was it was a tough path, but what does that look like? I will warn you, I probably am a lot more emotional this week than I've been in the past. Just a lot more flashbacks and just stuff you know man he came into this world guns a blazing <laughs> he was born early and then he had a short NICU stay and then at about two months old two three months old he had another hospital stay because he got RSV and pneumonia and that was about a week long stay and then and off and on for the time after that for about a year he would have recurrent episodes of pneumonia and asthma attacks and then at 15 months old Ezekiel got the flu and then within a span of four days we went to the doctor who did everything we're supposed to do he had pneumonia septic induced ARDS we went into the ER and he was flight lifted from one hospital to another and then he went on ECMO and for individuals who don't know that's just a really intense form of life support I just remember seeing it and you hear about it and then you see your little child there and it it was just a lot of things were hard to see there was this moment where uh, Ezekiel looked up at me and he could tell because he had a ventilator in his mouth you know, he had a ventilator. And so he looks up and he's scared. And the only thing that would ease him was this picture of how's your mom? And I was like, of course, <laughs> of course, I don't make you feel better. Great. <laughs> Just gave life to you. But so he was on ECMO and he had a lot of complications on ECMO too. So, you know, he's 15 months old. He goes on ECMO, his lungs collapse. He has internal bleeding that's so big that it moves his heart from the left side to the right side, pushes his organs to all kinds of places they're not supposed to be in, um, has a surgery to remove the blood has another tube god the kid had so many tubes in him at one point in his lungs and chest and everywhere and then he had a stroke i think that probably was a time that i tried to make sure that his room was always positive so if we were going to cry if we're going to be upset everyone had to leave the room you couldn't do that in his room like i needed that to be the place where he knew that everybody was just going to put positivity into there that we were going to like he was going to hear nothing but good and he was going to feel good and I would like massage him every day you know with coconut oil (laughs) like this is going to be the thing that helps you and I would always know when something was wrong it was just this like instinct to the point like the doctors at one point just knew like and I would know I would be I would go to work and I would just be like something's wrong something's wrong with my child somebody please listen to me there's something wrong and they're like we know he's sick and I'm like no something else is wrong and I would be right and so when he had the stroke was when we had to have some real conversations about um, the possibility of what would happen and we already know with ECMO the survival rates are low and then on top of it all the complications he was having and you know the doctors are really great at making sure that you have hope um, and saying things in a way that don't make you feel like you don't until they really know for sure that you don't have any more hope left. They knew they needed to get him off of this machine because you need blood thinners to be on ECMO and you can't be on blood thinners when you have a stroke and you have bleeding in your brain and swelling in your brain. And so he was just, he needed ECMO to live, but it was also causing major problems. And my only wish in that moment and my only request in that moment was I just wanted to make sure Ezekiel knew that I was his mom and no matter what happened, like, could I just hold him? And I wanted to make sure that if anything happened, that he knew that I was his mother, that he knew that I didn't leave him, that I was always there. And that was like my biggest thing. I just, 
wanted him to know that. I wanted him to know that I loved him and that I didn't ever give up on him. And I needed him to know that. I needed him to feel that so intensely. You know, in every surgery before he went in or every event before he went in, I would be like, hey, you can tell your uncle, hello, but come back to me. And at the very end, you know, I was like, just know that no time, no space, nothing will ever stop me from being your mom. There's nothing in the world that will ever keep me from being your mom. So do whatever you need to do to be okay. Like I, you know, used to hear stories that people hang on for a reason. And I didn't want him to feel like he needed to put himself through something in order to be here for me. And so I felt like if I, if I released him from like having to be there, then if he needed to go, it would be okay. And I just wanted him to know that I was his mom and that I loved him deeply. And I would sing to him every time, Sahibaji, like that was our thing. And in that moment, I was like, whatever you need, whatever it is, it's okay. Like, I'll be okay. It's also probably the moment that I recognized I could never imagine my own mother's pain of having lost a child. There's no way I could understand that and the depth of that. And ironically, through all of it, Ezekiel was our guide, my guide, the doctor's guide, everything. Like when I was scared, he was like, mom, I got this. And he would come through and I was like, okay, I get it. Like the doctors would always say, and you know, after he came off ECMO and when he woke up and everything, surgeons who had like done one of his surgeries, I mean, he had so many different ones. Every single person would come in there and just be like, we just want to look at him because he's our miracle. They wanted to take videos to be like, this is what doctors should look at when they give up hope. Like all doctors should have hope because Ezekiel defines that. I mean, I am offering you a virtual hug right now and to Ezekiel. And for our listeners, there is a happy ending to this story. (laughs) But we, I mean, it sounds like such an incredibly difficult path um, and one that really tested you and required a lot of strength. So we so admire you being here and and talking about it because I know this isn't easy to talk about even years later. And I know you'd mentioned that while he was going through this, Ezekiel really found strength in Thusby and in looking at pictures of Hazri mom, you know, tying all of that in, what was yours and Ezekiel's relationship with the Smiley community? And, you know, how was that brought into his life beyond just when he was in the ICU? And what were community reactions to you and your son knowing that, you know, you, you were a single mother? You know, so far, most people haven't really said anything. I don't know if they just don't realize because little kids are with their mothers and so they don't see them with their father. Initially, I think the the thing, it wasn't a reaction, but the thing that was, I think, just like, not an obstacle, but Mookie got Maria were just, when I wanted to do their his bayat, they're like, well, we just have to find out what's the protocol because we really haven't had this situation. And so it ended up being fine. It showed the birth certificate as me being the only parent. And they were fine, but they were just like, well, we haven't had this happen. And really after that, it was pretty much, I don't recall hearing much from the community, not yet at least. I feel like that may come as he gets older because I think then life gets a little bit different and what kids say to him and how he handles it, that piece may come up. Ezekiel has always had a song, strong sense of faith. I will say that in terms of like engagement with the community. So when he was little, even before he would, before he went in the hospital, he would like take Bapa's picture, like and he called it Bapa. So he'd be like, Bapa, Bapa. And he would go like, he would just kind of go, <laughs> I didn't realize it, but he would go blah, 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 blah. And that was his way of saying, that's <laughs> He would like want the picture there as he played so that 
the picture of Azra mom could like watch him. Like it was always calming, even in the hospital. Like we would play thespy, and the nurses and doctors at one point were like, "Can you please put that on?" And they have these little iPhones where you can play music because his heart rate and his like vitals would significantly shift in the hospital to where they were manageable. And so they were like, "Just keep it on." And you know, first they would ask me for my phone, and then I had to go to work, and they're like, well, "We can find it on here. Just put it on." <laughs> There was a group of REC students that I guess had learned about what was going on for Ezekiel during Diamond Jubilee time. And they had written these letters and they were the most moving letters. Individuals who talked about like not having faith before. And now they heard the story about Ezekiel and they would go to Kanye every day and pray. And that thus be meant something different because they were praying for a specific individual. And they, they were talking about how they knew they were going to Didar and they hoped that there would be light in my life and Ezekiel's life. And when everyone went to the Dar, at least everyone that I knew, I said, you know, can you, like, if everyone could just say, like, that very first thespi when you see Hazri Mom for Ezekiel, just one, because I believe in the power of prayer. And I had the opportunity to go early. I didn't go to the Dar because I just felt like if my child is not going, I'm not going. Ezekiel loves Hazri Mom so much. And then, of course, there's a little bit of resentment in that. There was. But I got to go early, and so I did a quick, like, flight flew in, flew out. And that was my way of like standing in front of what I felt like the imam and saying my prayer and being like, you just heard a mother's prayer. Like you gotta answer this, right? Like I'm right here. Gotta listen to a mother. People would tell me superstitious stuff. And I'll be honest, I did every single one of them. Because at that time, if you believe it, I'm in. I don't care. I'm in anything, anything to save my child. So I found that in that moment, even from afar or close in the ways that I needed, I felt the strength of my community. That's amazing. I'm so incredibly happy to hear about the story with the REC kids and just people sending food. I mean, I feel like little acts of kindness go such a long way. So during that time, how did you cope with it? And did you feel like your faith was tested or challenged or was the foundation always strong for you? Yeah. So I think to answer that, I have to backtrack a little bit. My faith was tested a lot when my brother passed away. That is the time when people would tell me, take the thusby, say salva, do this, do that. And I was like, get that thusby away from me. What kind of God takes my brother? <laughs> you know? And I really turned away from faith and I turned away from community and I didn't want to be I didn't want to be a part of it. It was just rituals and rites and now I see them as helpful, but at the time I really didn't see all those rites and rituals as helpful. I just I didn't like it. I had one friend who asked me to do a project and somehow that brought me back to the community. And somehow that brought me back in and I found strength again in our community. And I think when I was Kamranima was a time that I connected the most. And I think somehow that stuck with me. So when Ezekiel went in the hospital, I had my thespi with me all the time. I just knew that this was so big that I couldn't get through it without God. Like I had to give myself over and surrender myself to God in order for me to survive this. Like there is no humanly possible way I was going to get through this on my own. The only way was for me to just be like, you take over, you do this, because I don't know how I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. And then I got some opportunities to do some seva. And in that, I learned that the dar wasn't ever meant for me to have. But there's a lot of brothers and sisters around the world who never had that. And maybe I was not meant to have it so I could understand and connect and recognize that I actually am connected to all these individuals around the world that is so much greater than the idea of just a dar. And so that, I think, kind of has been my journey with faith in this process. So kind of to, to wrap up, I would love to 
open the floor if you have anything that you want to add, anything we should have asked that didn't, any advice, whatever you'd like to share. I would say my biggest lesson, my biggest learning in that moment, I've always been a person that struggled to find my voice. I've always been a person that struggled with my sense of identity and community and all these different aspects that I think most people do. And I really did. Like, I don't think I was the most confident person growing up by any means. I think I got that when I left Dallas and I found a lot of my voice. And I think in coming back to Dallas, I felt I lost my voice again. Being a mom made me find that voice. But my biggest, biggest thing that I got from that was I trusted myself. And if anything I would tell anyone ever is trust yourself. Trust your gut. Listen to that inner voice. Because I'm telling you, when you do, things fall into place really differently. I think we all have it. And I think that women in particular are not taught to hone into it or to listen to it. Like there's all these other external things that come into play, right? Family, expectations, friendships, relationships relationships in general, just so much. But I think if we listen to ourselves and you figure out how to trust your instinct, life works out differently. And then use your voice when you listen to yourself. Incredible message. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for sharing your story. Learned so much from you. To wrap this up, we have a final piece, rapid fire. And so you'll have a minute and 30 seconds to answer 12 questions. What's your favorite form of potato? Uh, French fries. Favorite holiday? Thanksgiving. Eat. Eat. What? <laughs> What's something you should do but probably won't get around to? Leaving Dallas. What's your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? Mac and cheese. If you were an inanimate object, what would you be? A lamp. Window or aisle? Window. If you were famous, what would you be famous for? For being me. If you could raid one person's closet, whose would it be? Michelle Obama. Mm -hmm. At what age did you learn the most about yourself? 30. What TV sitcom would you be a member of? Dear White People. Uh, what compliment do you like receiving the most? That I'm smart. What was the last book you read? The Hate You Give. Yay! Oh my god, with 10 seconds left. Crushed it. Well, again, can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you learned something and hopefully you loved Aaliyah's story and loved her in general. She's such a rock star and we are so thankful to know her and to have her on the podcast. You can look forward to part two of this four-part series. We'll be having another amazing mother named Neelam who will come on and share her journey and her trials and tribulations to motherhood. Exactly. Neelam's story is really difficult to hear in some ways but we are very thankful that she shared it with us she actually delivered her child five months early so it was a significant process making sure her child was healthy he was in the hospital for a really 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 long time and there were so many health complications that came with that for both the mother and the baby we will have her on in two weeks and you can hear about it then and in the meantime Stay tuned on our Instagram for updates and special content. Yeah, See you in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> See you in two weeks. <laughs> How do I make it sound less awkward? I think it was fine, dude. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. 
Shop now at Hero.co.